You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Got a very powerful prayer that Jesus offers to his Father. So pay attention as I read this encounter from Matthew 26 verses 36 to 46. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. We'll hear his agonizing prayer. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to, to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away, prayed, for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, we're gathered around your word and This encounter, this experience that Jesus has with his Father and with the disciples is an amazing. And so, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work of grace as we gather around your word, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would convict us, that you would change us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is why I wish we only had one service. (laughs) And you'll find out why. Have you ever felt heavy-hearted for someone? So burdened that you want to find a way to help. You're in agony over the person's situation. I remember the experience many years ago. Val and I were, had years of struggle with infertility. She became pregnant while, while we were in seminary. And then we lost our child. There was an experience that was something that I'll never forget because here we are, we just became pregnant. People were thrilled, they were excited, they were overwhelmed, they were sharing that joy with us. Prayer was answered. And so when we that summer returned from an internship at a local church in Howard County, we were not ready for the news that we were about to receive. We went to the doctor's appointment that Val had scheduled already We met with the doctor, and she was trying to find the heartbeat, could not find the heartbeat. 
Then they decide to do a sonogram. Maybe the sonogram would pick up the heartbeat. And when they came back and they said the baby had died. You can imagine, as Val and I heard that news, we just stood there hugging one another, crying out to God. But as that began to resonate with my heart, I just remembered that it's been Val's desire since a kid, she wanted to be a mom. Even in our vows that we wrote, our own vows, she said in her vows, I cannot wait to bear the children, our children, together. And so I was thinking, how can I walk alongside my wife? I was heavy-hearted for her. I was overwhelmed. How will I be able to, to minister to her, to show her love in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of losing a child that we desperately wanted, to, to walk in this will that God has for us? So in pain and confusion and in doubt and disappointment, I ran to God in our pain and in agony, asking God to care for my wife and help me fulfill his will for us in this tragic loss. I believe in this very, very small scale, I experienced what Jesus experienced for us at Gethsemane. Jesus agonized over God's will for him to bear the weight of our sin. So this morning, I want us to look at this prayer, to look at Jesus and his interaction with the Father and with his disciples. And as we, as we look at that, I want us to, to look at three things. Jesus' cry for friendship, his agony over us, then lastly, his sadness that leads to joy. Look at this section again, verses Matthew 26, verses 36 and 40. We see Jesus' cry for friendship. We see in this interaction with his disciples that he wanted them to be there for him. And, and that shouldn't be strange to us, right? When we are suffering, what do we want most other than that suffering, that trial, that temptation to be taken away? What did Val and I want more than anything when we went through the death of our son? We wanted friendship. We wanted people to walk alongside us, right? We wanted people to comfort us and support us. We didn't want to necessarily be fixed, right? But we wanted to see love shown to us through our troubles. This is what Jesus wanted from his disciples. He wanted his friends to be with him. He wanted them to support him. Again, not to fix him, but to to be with him in the midst of what is going to happen the next day. Look at what Jesus says in verses 38 and 40 of this chapter. He says, my soul, he says to the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I mean, he's pretty emphatic. He kind of lets them know what's going on, right? Remain here and watch with me. And in verse 38, so you could not, so, so he comes back and sees that he's, they're sleeping. He says, so you, could you not watch with me one hour? Think of it. The Lord of the universe, the Son of God, the friend of sinners, our guide and comforter, right, is hungering for companionship. Jesus wants friends to be with him in his suffering. And he's frustrated and he's disappointed that they can't stay awake, that they sleep. 
But what's so beautiful about Jesus, he doesn't keep it to himself. He's painfully honest with them. He's direct with his friends. See, he values his friendship so much that he doesn't withdraw, but he confronts them in love that he needs their support. As I think of that cry for friendship, as I think of our Jesus as modeling for us our need for have others to walk alongside us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficult relationships, in the midst of physical pain and struggle, whatever the suffering that God has for us, there's a cry for all of us to be doing this together as a body of Christ. And as I evaluate this, as Val and I walk through infertility and through the death of our son, we had a variety of different interactions with us, different responses. Some were good, and some were hurtful and painful. I remember when we first, when we found out that we lost our son and that we would have, Val would have to deliver our son, a stillborn baby, one of our so-called friends, I will say, said to us, as she found out that it was a boy that we lost, at least it wasn't a girl. Do you find that that would be helpful? Was that a friend loving us in the midst of our suffering? No. But on the other hand, we had friends. Val had a friend that she worked with a couple years prior that would send, would call her every week. Val, how are you doing? I know this is hard. Living with her in the midst of her suffering. Not trying to fix her, but to walk with her, to support her, to encourage her. We had another incident. I remember when, when um, and it, it, it happened in the hospital room when our baby was delivered, and we had our baby um, with us for a while, and we would have visitors. And I remember... Uh, one of our pastors of the church that we were attending at the time, walking in, <laughs> and not to pick on him, but, and I made sure that I didn't do this when I, was, when I went through hospital visitation, but he was like, he was so uncomfortable. He did not know what to do. It was like he was in agony, kind of just, how do I, how, how do I, what do I do, what do I say? And that, that contrasting to our small group leader, when, when she came into come into the hospital room. She was so, so amazing. Wasn't she just, I made it this far. <laughs> she walked into our hospital room and she looked at our, our son and it was like, like making a fuss over our son and just make how beautiful it was. And it doesn't that speak volumes to our hearts when we have people who are walking with us in our pain and our suffering. Friends, there are folks in our congregation who are experiencing and dealing with serious stuff, physical stuff like Rodney and Winston, emotional stuff, relational difficulties in our marriages and our families, our extended families. Are we listening to their cry for friendship? And are we being honest when we need help, we need a friend, are we being honest, please help me and support me? See, in Jesus, we see that, his cry for friendship in the midst of suffering. But we also see what is a, the pinnacle of this passage is his agony 
over us. So give you some historical background. After the Passover meal, they just shared a meal together, Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem and walk across the Kidron stream up to the Mount of Olives, east of the city, to a garden called Gethsemane, which means olive press. Now, right, I want you to get the picture, right? Olive press, right? They take the olive leaves and they press to get the oil out of them, right? They press and they press to get oil. Don't miss this, this, the, the connection to Gethsemane, right? Jesus goes to, the, to Gethsemane, right? And he, he feels, the, the, feels, the, feels and experiences the crushing rate, weight of his upcoming suffering. John Calvin, a theologian in the 16th century and pastor, says this, Though God had already tried his son by certain preparatory exercises, he now wounds him more sharply by a nearer prospect of death strikes his mind with a terror to which he had been, not, never been accustomed. For if we are ashamed, I like this, for if we are ashamed that Christ would experience fear and sorrow, our redemption will perish and be lost. Ambrose, an early 4th century Christian scholar, says this, I not only do not think that there is any need of excuse, but there is no instance in which I admire Jesus' kindness and his majesty. For he would not have done so much for me if he had not taken upon him my feelings. He grieved for me, who had no cause of grief for himself. Loving aside the delight of the internal Godhead, he experienced the affliction of my weakness. It was therefore necessary that he should experience grief, that he might overcome sorrow and not shut it out. See, they're saying Jesus needed to experience this agony before the Father. It was part of, our, part of our salvation for him to experience that. In fact, the words that Mark, Luke, and Matthew use of the same situation, they use words like deeply grieved, appalled, or deeply distressed, or my soul deeply grieved to the point of death. Commentators explained these words this way. It's the idea of this of this word is loathing and discontent. It describes the confused, restless, half-distant state which is produced by mental distress or grief. When it said Christ's soul was, was sick and fainted and it almost failed him, his heart almost failed him. When it said this, use of these words, minds are, minds are of horror struck by the sight or thought of something great or atrocious. Not merely because it injects fear, but because a mind can scarcely take it in. Another says this, the sorrow or eternal pain and a stress which hems in on every side from which there is therefore no escape, which presses in and besets from every side, therefore Jesus leaves no place for defense. Not only is this a mental anguish of, of what is about to happen, there is physical manifestation, right? He falls down. Calvin says this, by the gesture of falling on the earth, Jesus manifested his deep earnestness in prayer. Christ, by throwing himself on the ground as a supplement, placed himself in a pitiful attitude of his grief. But not only that, he, what does it say? In Luke it says, he prayed more earnestly that his sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, for those in the medical field, that, that happens often under extreme stress. 
The capillaries on the surface of the skin burst and blood mixed with sweat comes out of the pores. See, Jesus begins to die at the mere thought of what's coming. That's why John Calvin says the mortal sweat of blood could not, could only have had proceeded from fearful and unusual horror. How many times does Jesus go and pray this prayer? Not once, not twice, three times. God, this wrath I'm going to be about to take, can it be removed? Goes to his disciples, they're sleeping, disappointed, right? Uh, goes to the Father again, Father, help, do I need to do this? Goes to his disciples, they're sleeping again. Goes back to the Father. See, Jesus experienced what he felt like a painful death in the garden. Why? Why? In the Old Testament, the cup of wrath represented a consequence of our sin. When the nation of Israel sinned against God, the prophets said they would have to drink the cup of God's wrath. So that means to drink the cup of God's wrath means to face the consequence for sin. For example, a drug users drink the cup of wrath when they get hepatitis. A gambler, gambler drinks the cup of, of consequence when they own an imaginable debt and face either the threat of life or in prison time. Materialistic folks drink the cup of wrath when they need to declare bankruptcy. But what's amazing here, what's going on at the garden and then at the cross, is that Jesus drank the cup that we deserved to drink. He paid for our anger. He paid for our jealousy. He paid for our gossip. He paid for our covenantness. He paid for our dishonesty. He paid for all of our sins, our idolatrous heart desires more than him. That's why Aslam, a medieval theologian, describes Jesus' agony in this way. We have offended an infinite God, so we owe him an infinite debt. But as finite creatures, we are in, in, incapable of paying that debt. It is a debt that man owes, but that only God can pay. In other words, we have a God-sized debt, but we are only man-sized. How can we pay? We need a God-sized man to pay. Jesus, the God-sized man, had paid the God-sized debt. Think of it this way. Think of a sin that you committed in the past. How did you feel? Shame, guilty, the sin might have weighed you down. But think of that one sin, that sin weighed Jesus down at the garden. Now imagine the burden, not only of that one sin, but all of your sins, past, present, and future. Now imagine all the feelings those sins have caused being placed on Jesus, who is perfectly pure, righteous, good, and holy. Now imagine all the people for whom, for whom Christ died with all their sin burdens and imagine all the sin burdens of those sins coming on Jesus. Now imagine the shock of a completely pure, righteous, holy, and perfectly obedient person receiving the weight of not just one sin, but all of our sins and then the sins of the whole world. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now imagine his father whom Jesus loved intimately, perfectly, personally, and who has loved Jesus, this perfect love relationship with the father and son since eternity, it turns from him. His father turns from him because he's now carrying the weight, the full load of all of our sins and the sins of the world. Now lastly, now finally imagine the father not just turning from him, but turning against him in infinite wrath those few hours on the cross. Jesus' identification with sin was so complete that Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Jesus became what? A curse for us. He never stopped being perfect. He never stopped being obedient. But yet he became a curse for us. Listen how John Calvin describes it. He said, he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. And because of our sins, the load of which was laid upon him pressed him down with their over enormous weight. The thought of this horrified Jesus. So we can understand why he prays, let this cup pass from me. Jesus wants relief from the coming terror. So he asks if there's a way out. Now, even though Jesus was perfectly obedient his entire life, you get a sense from this prayer in his relationship with his father that it's real, it's vibrant, it's not mechanical, it's not wooden. Jesus was free to be honest with his father. Jesus' goodness and holiness and perfection doesn't make him plastic or artificial. And as Jesus considers the weight and as he remembers his father's love, he chooses to be ruled by his father and not his feelings. And so he voluntarily surrenders his whole life to the father's world, will. Paul Miller says these two amazing things about Jesus. He's really real about his feelings, and yet his feelings don't control him. See, he holds the tension of being perfect, perfectly being obedient without being robotic or phony. He is a perfect lamb. His obedience is without blemish. He's, he's a true warrior, the only one who has mastered himself because he has submitted to his heavenly Father. What about this agony we can learn? Well, if you're going through agony yourself, right? If you're going through suffering and trial, you actually have a Savior. You have this Jesus who truly understands what you are going through and what I am going through. The suffering we experience in the loss of, of our son and through infertility. Because Jesus suffered more ten times, thousand times, a million times more than we have, we understand that God understands Jesus understands us in the midst of that suffering. And because we know the Savior that, that walks with us in love through our suffering, and by our union with him, we're able, by his grace, to walk with others who are agonizing, who are in pain. Friends, don't miss in this prayer 
how Jesus is agonizing over you personally and over me personally. So that you do not have to carry that weight or burden. He's taken it so that you can experience his love. That's what this table is all about. This table reminds us of this love and this grace that our God has for us. Now, as I, as I think of, of just the gospel story, right? I'm, I, I think God, you know, is, even as I look at my own life, God, why would you even bother with Gethsemane in the cross? Why don't you just get rid of us? <laughs> we don't deserve it. We don't deserve this kind of love. We care more about ourselves and than about you, God? Why put your beloved Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, through such agony? Something had to make it worth it, Gethsemane worth it. Something must had to outweigh the agony of the garden. What would be more valuable, what would be valuable enough to outweigh the agony of facing and experiencing the cross? I believe the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer. He says this, For the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scoring the shame. Human beings will endure incredible amount of pain if it leads to even greater joy. Right? Ask a mother in childbirth or an Olympic athlete, Right? The enormity of joy is even greater from the enormity of agony. And since we have some sense of the awful death of the agony at Gethsemane, we get some sense of the idea of the immensity of the coming joy. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 26. He says, that the love that you had for me, he's praying to his father, right? He's praying to his father here. He says, the love that you, you and I have, that you and I share, may it be in them. May it be in my disciples. May it be in those who profess me as Lord and Savior. See, the Father's love, as Jesus experienced it, is so deep and so sweet that he'll go through Gethsemane in order for us to experience it and to have it. That's why in other parts of Scripture, Paul can, Paul and Peter can say this, Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will reveal to us. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, but rejoice that you're participating in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. My wife experienced some of that. As she was crying out to God, as she had faithful, loving friends ministering to her heart, she was reminded of her Heavenly Father willingness, willingly, joyfully willingness to have his son die for her. 
And as she experienced the loss of her own son, she understood how God most definitely understands the loss of that child. And in a sense, it filled her with a faith and of joy. Not this aha joy, but this inner joy and peace that God offers us when we know that he is with us in suffering. As Psalm 91 reminds us that he's with us in the midst of our troubles. As this garden reminds us that Jesus is, is in the midst of our trouble because he understands our troubles and identifies with it. That's why this table is so beautiful. For it reminds us, those who have put their faith in Christ, to come and receive grace and mercy, to be reminded that you're not alone in this journey. Yeah, God was, Jesus was forsaken at one point. You will never be. That's what this table reminds us. Jesus was lonely for a time, but you will never be. This table reminds us of those who put their faith in him that we are eternally in a secure, loving relationship, that he's in the midst of us, with us, in the midst of suffering, and he can understand what we're going through, no matter what that may be. So if you are a follower of Christ, come to this table. You're invited, as Jesus even invited his disciples, knowing that they would betray him, knowing that they would sleep right when he was praying, yet he eagerly wanted to feast with them. Jesus wants you to remember that he eagerly wants to feast with you this morning.